Good morning and a happy hump day to you folks. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Top of the morning to you all. This is a fabulous day to realize that you are worthy to receive. There is a lot of guilt and fear being projected in the media today, and a lot of people take it personally. Just remember, you are worthy of receiving love, gratitude, money, success from others. So today, choose not to get caught up in the fear and the shaming happening all over in the media and focus on the successes and love that surround you and your life. Choose to be worthy to receive today on this hump day, St. Patrick's Day. Oh yeah, baby, let's get this party started. Top of the morning to y'all. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Wednesday to you folks. It is middle of the week, hump day, St. Patrick's Day, and it is also World Shale Energy Day. Folks, this is Jason Space. Welcome to the Play Hard, Work Hard morning show. Just getting back from a long road trip down to the Permian in Oklahoma. We spent a couple days in Tulsa. We were down in Kansas. We were down in Midland, Odessa. Boy, I tell you, we did several thousand miles on this recent trip as we continue to travel across Shale Play USA to become boots on the ground and find out firsthand what's happening down in Shale Play USA. And today, by the way, is World Shale Energy Day. We'd like to give it a little extra thanks today for those men and women out there dedicated to making sure our light switch turns on, our cars are drivable, and... Castlevania can be played on my mobile phone. Understand that's one of the new Candy Crushes. Candy Crushes, so yesterday. Well, it is, isn't it? Sterling's off today. He'll be back tomorrow as we continue here. March Madness, a little later on today, we are going to announce the brackets. Boy, how exciting is this going to be? Swan Energy won it last year, took out Target Hospitality in the finals. It was Aries. Target Hospitality, Swan Energy, and Canine Pipe Inspection, the number 13 seed making it to the Final Four last year. Well, this year, we're going to have a tournament selection program coming up this afternoon. We're going to have it announced on social media. We'll see where everybody lands. And it's quite easy, folks. Since there's actual tournament this year and the teams are in the March Madness bracket, all we're going to do is pull a name out of a hat, well, metaphorical hat. Maybe it will be a hat. You know what? We will probably do a hat. So we're going to pull a name out of the hat, and that is the oil field company, the crude life company, if you will. And then we're going to pull a name out of the NCAA hat. So if we pull out Duke, I don't even think Duke's in the tournament, but if we pull out Duke and we pull out Orange Property Management, well, we take out Duke and just put in Orange Property Management. And depending on how Duke does in the tournament, 
That is how Orange Property Management would do in the tournament. Okay, that's just a quick example. Like I said, I haven't even looked at the NCAA bracket yet. That's how busy I've been traveling and getting things done. So we have the tournament selection show coming up a little bit later on in social media land. We'll talk about it tomorrow with Sterling. The Industrial Forest, big happenings are doing in there. We've got just some great success going on there down in Midland, Texas. Had some outstanding meetings, some talks down there about using recycled frac water in order to water an industrial forest in the desert, in the Permian. That's going to be fantastic, folks. This is truly, this is industry solving many problems. Can you imagine when the national media gets a hold of this? When they find out that industry is building a forest, a sustainable forest, while the nonprofits and cities have been killing 50% of the trees that have been planted in the last 20 years, industry is building a solution to yet another problem. And we're planning a shade park in Texas. And in Bismarck, North Dakota, we're going to plant an educational and awareness park, a walking park, if you will. Oh, this is going to be fabulous. So meetings coming up in Bismarck. Meetings were great down in Texas. So the industrial forest continues on. The Permian Pipeliners, Permian Association of Pipeliners, they are annual cook-off. We've got interviews and social media uh, photos, et cetera, that we're going to be rolling out over the next week now that we are back from there. We have a new sponsor. Very excited about MineralTracker.com and First International Bank. Thank you very much, MineralTracker.com and First International Bank for becoming a sponsor here at The Crude Life. And also, Great American Mining and Blackwater Environmental are our sponsors this week. So we have our weekly sponsors, and then also we've added a new sponsor, MineralTracker.com. Folks, we are having a fabulous week, a fantabulous week. That's how damn good this week is. I'm going to make up a word, fantabulous. Makes me think of fantastic and fabulous together. That's how great the week is going here. I'm back from, oh my goodness, like I said, several thousand miles. Yoga extra hard this week. Or wait, is that even a thing? Extra hard yoga? No, it's got to be extra relaxing. It's got to be, maybe do some hot yoga. Maybe do some of that. Well, we'll see. Folks, we have got an interesting day today, by the way. So we're just going to have one interview today. So what I thought we would do is interview Mike Renfro. Now, Mike Renfro is with Blue Boat Sub C. Blue Boat Sub C. When you say it real fast, Blue Boat Sub C, it almost sounds like subsidy. And... It's easy to get confused because we're going to talk about wind energy. So Mike Renfro has worked in oil and gas for 29 years, and now he works in wind. 80% of his business is now in wind. And the 20% of his business in oil and gas is actually decommissioning oil and gas pipelines and wells. So Mike Renfro is a very interesting interview because he is what this administration is trying to get the rest of the oil and gas people doing. And Mike Renfro was not directed by politics. He was directed by marketplace 
and just surviving, flat out surviving, going to where the money was. And guess what? When the government controls the marketplace, I feel like I need to repeat that again. Guess what? When the government controls the marketplace, Mike Renfro found out that his passion for oil and gas no longer carried him to feed his family. He had to go within one year to two years. One to two years. Think about this. He was 100% oil and gas. And then one to two year span, he is now 80% wind, 20% oil and gas. Folks, you don't want to miss this. If you're a CEO for a major oil and gas company, you need to listen to this interview. If you're a worker for any oil and gas supply chain, you need to listen to this interview. This is an interview that could be prophetic in a lot of ways if the current leadership in oil and gas continues to go down the path they're going. Keep in mind, we haven't seen any change in the direction, the style, the tone, and the language coming from the leadership in the past 10 years. True story. Go back for the last 10 years, and all they've done is they've amped up and amplified the same message and the same style that they've done for the last 10 years. The same money has gone to the same people, including the same access and the same resources. 10 years ago, we were talking about plastic bags and straws were the issue in oil and gas. Now the president of the United States says, go build solar panels. I don't know about you folks, but if I wasn't investing billions of dollars into connection and public relations in the oil and gas industry, I'd be asking for some answers from the leadership over the last 10 years. Seriously. But maybe this is the direction they want to go. Maybe they want people to become like Mike Renfro. Maybe the leadership in oil and gas wants people to leave the industry and go to wind because that's where the government is directing them to. So when I see that the leadership in oil and gas goes out and does fundraisers so that they can turn around and give it to organizations that support Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, makes me wonder if this is really what the industry leadership wants. That's not what they say, but that's what their actions seem to do. So the body of work is done. The body of work over the last 10 years is done, folks. The finger pointing is done. All that. Now it's just what's next. This interview with Mike Renfro is what's next for him. So I think a lot of folks should listen to it. A little bit work hard today. That's hump day for you, folks. So we're going to take a brief pause. We come back. Mike Renfro with Blue Boat Subsea explains his transition after 29 years of oil and gas to now 80% wind, 20% oil and gas. Folks, my name is Jason Spies. This is Play Hard, Work Hard. Sterling is off today. He'll be back tomorrow. By the way, his hometown, Dahran there in Saudi Arabia, that apparently it got bombed. Something like that. We're going to find more about that tomorrow with Sterling. But up next, Mike Renfro, Blue Boat Subsea, with his story. Mind blown Mind blown, your mind blown Show you something that's never
music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by Blackwater Environmental, is a family-owned company with over 10 years of on-site industrial experience, offering inspections, consulting, coding failure analysis, specification writing, and coding application services, along with many other services for energy, oil, gas, and municipalities. Blackwater Environmental was started in Moorcraft, Wyoming, but has grown to a larger facility in Gillette, Wyoming, where they provide a better quality of service for their customers. For more information on Blackwater Environmental, check out their website, blackwaterenviro.com. That's blackwaterenviro.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to GAM.AI. That's Great American Mining, GAM.AI. The Industrial Forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey, folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. All right, go ahead, state your name and company in three, two, one for a mic level check. Sure. My name is Mike Ranfro. I'm with a company called Blue Boat Subsea. And uh, Blue Boat Subsea is a renewables service provider. I also own three other companies that are primarily traditional energy companies, Deep Blue Subsea, Deep Blue Marine, and Deep Blue Offshore International. Now, you reached out to me on social media about your company. And if my memory serves me correctly, you mentioned you had uh, 29 years of oil and gas experience. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to Houston from Roseau, Minnesota in 93. 
Okay. And where'd you move to in Texas? I've lived predominantly in the Houston area. Um, I lived in Houston for five years. And when my wife and I got married in 99, we moved out to Spring, which is on the north side of Harris County, which encompasses Houston. When kids came along post-Katrina, we uh, decided we wanted to be a little further away from uh, all of the modern uh, childhood temptations, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My uh, morning show partner, he grew up in Saudi Arabia uh, on an oil base, it's called Dahran, which is actually like a city, but it's a, it's it's really an oil base because all the employees there, from the teachers to the grocery store workers, they're actually employees of Saudi Aramco. And back, right, I've, I've actually I've actually done work uh, with Saudi Aramco. I spent a year during Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia. Okay, so Iraq. you're you're familiar with that then? Yes, sir. Um. So anyway, he uh, he jokes that you know when he was six, I think it was sixteen, they send you away to boarding school because of the temptations <laughs> that that come with a foreign market. And uh, being in Saudi Arabia, it was in the best interest to send the boys away to Saudi to boarding boarding school. So I, anyway, that, that's what made me think of it when you said the temptations of that. But I was actually thinking you might want to move away from the coast just because of hurricanes. Uh, just by sheer just safety and just, you know, different lifestyle. And up here in the Midwest, we've got flooding issues and people get tired of the cold. And you know what I mean by that. You know, I spent 25 years in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, on the Canadian border, and I would much rather deal with hurricanes, to be honest. They're really not that bad. I mean, depending on where you're at. Um, and where you, yeah, what your uh, structure's like, too. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we had, during Hurricane Ike in 09, we had 117-mile-an-hour winds over the top of my house. We lost power. We were without power for 13 days, but we have generators and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like snowplows up north, right? And um, we never had, I mean, we, we had power. It was just generator power. The only inconvenience was having to go get you know, so many gallons of gas a day to keep the generator going. Find it and, interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We, you know, I mean, I've, I don't even know how many hurricanes I've been through. Eight or ten, probably. And, I mean, we've never suffered any substantial damage. We've had inconveniences. Um, Hurricane Harvey, we were surrounded by water, but we were above it. Um. Of course, we just had the winter storm down here, which I'm, I'm sure everyone up north jokes about because I'd have never missed a day of work had I still lived in Minnesota. But we just don't have the infrastructure to remove ice and snow. We don't have plows. Uh, most of us lost power. Um, it, it's just a slight, it, it's a trade off, right? Hurricanes that replace blizzards, in my, in my mind, haven't been here as long as I have. One of the things that the Texas freeze or the power outage and, you know, that that just happened last month. The uh, thing that reminded me of up here in Minnesota and North Dakota, we get people that go without power for weeks all the time. But they're 
they're rural people. They're used to it, and they're self-sufficient because when, when the rain comes in and then it freezes, it coats those power lines. And out, out in the rural part, man, those power lines, if they snap, sometimes it takes two weeks before the power company can get out there and repair them. And, you know, those people living out there, there's like four of them, four homes out there. And it's, it's funny because when I was at the radio station, we used to check in with them for daily updates. And they were doing better than a lot of people around town. <laughs> so, my, my mother grew up in Lakota, just west of, northwest of you. Um, just eat between Grand Forks and, and uh, Devil's Lake. Sure. And uh, we still have the family farm there. And you're, you're right, they're very self-sufficient. I mean, it would take a, a, a pretty catastrophic, probably an apocalyptic type of a event for them to uh, have too many concerns. So let's uh, transition a little bit to what you're doing now. Now, you spent, you know, you, you grew up in Minnesota, War Road, actually, Canadian border. And, yeah, yeah. and then you, you moved down to Texas, where you spent 29 years in the oil and gas industry. My guess is you didn't spend any time in the oil and gas industry up in War Road. I did not. No, I, there, uh, there's none up there. There's nothing up there, is there? No, no. I mean, I, I worked in a typical rural farming community. I worked at yeah. the elevator, the lumber yard. Uh, there used to be a chain of lumber stores, you know, Robertson Lumber out of Grand Forks. I worked for them for several years. I did construction. Maybe a hockey stick company in there. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Christian Brothers, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, I worked at Marvin Windows for a little while. Okay. About a year, I, just did, I don't like working in factories. I mean, I'm an outdoors kind of a person. And when, during Desert Storm, I was actually introduced to scuba diving in, on an MWR tour at Bahrain. And I got my first initial certification in uh, Saudi Arabia, actually at uh, one of the Aramco complexes. And I just decided that I, I wanted to do something different with my life. And so uh, I spent, I, I got back in December of 91, and I spent most of 92 getting my affairs in order. In March of 93, I moved to Houston. I went to commercial diving school, and I went to work in the oil field. I didn't really plan on going to work in the oil field, but I wanted to be a commercial diver. And the oil field is where all the work was at. And um, I've spent most of my career, I, I spent probably... Can I, can I pause a, for a second? Oh, sure. we, let's pause for a second here. Sure. I'm not familiar with the commercial diving aspect of oil and gas outside of like some some deep sea welding or something like that. Is there, you know, is there exploratory diving jobs? I guess talk to me a little bit about how that that diving job became a gateway into oil and gas. And I I'm, I apologize for my naivete on that. No, not at all. You know, and, and, and it's real easy. And, and you touched on part of it. Diving and welding is part of it. Although welding underwater has become almost a bygone thing because... No kidding. Those welding, the, the welds that you perform underwater quench very quickly yeah. compared to welding a pipeline on the surface across, you know, western North Dakota. So they're very brittle. So the majority of the work I did, I actually laid pipe. Um, we installed platforms, we removed platforms. I worked on big derrick barges, pipe plate barges, as well as 
dedicated dive support vessels. And then in uh, 99, when, when uh, I convinced my, my girlfriend of five years, it wasn't really five years if you ask her, because I was home about 20 or 30 days out of every year, and two or three at a time usually. Um, she thought she wanted me home every night. And she didn't realize what she was asking for, but I, I, I took a job in operations and then ultimately sales working for a company called Superior Diving, who I had been diving for previously. Uh, I was there for in the working in the office about four years, and I started getting some other job offers that were a whole lot better than the the um, place I was working. It opened doors with companies like Shell, Exxon, Chevron, VP, and uh, I continued working for that company, Epic Divers, for about two years. Then I went back offshore for about a year working as a oil company representative. So I was the guy in charge of the boat offshore. And then I got pulled back into sales in 2005 working for a company. It was actually one of Forbes's top, top 10 fastest growing companies in America for two years post Katrina. That, the name of that company was Deep Marine Technology. I stayed there until they started failing in 2009 is when I started my own company. And I've been with, I've been self-employed ever since. So how did you transition then? I don't know. Are you completely out of oil and gas and into wind energy a hundred percent or talk to me a little bit about that whole deal? I'd say about, about 80% wind and about 20% energy, uh, oil and gas. Most of what we're doing with oil and gas, is decommissioning. I believe there's 27 structures off the California coast right now that are slated for removal. And one of our boats is, um, we have tendered several of those projects, both for the state of California, as well as the individual operators that originally installed them. I'm under non-disclosure on that. I can't say who owns them, but it, not rocket science. There's only three companies that own, all, own structures off the California coast. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the trend has been, especially since the downturn in 2012, is that the large oil companies are removing these, these minimal producing structures and reinvesting that money in other areas like Exxon is in Guyana. But the the majority of the work that we're seeing in oil and gas, which is about probably 20% of our business, is almost all removal. Interesting. It's taking those structures out. We do have one bid in, in um, Saudi Arabia for a very large international, um, uh, I guess you'd call them a, a multinational uh, contractor. They're installing uh, the Marjan project for Aramco. We've got live bids out for that, that we may or may not end up securing that work. So the wind energy part, what's, um, how, how'd you get into that from oil and gas then? I mean, was it, was it you know, bid you work? Know, uh, obviously bid work, but how, how did that initially happen? In early 2020, when the COVID crisis was beginning, 
Um, I had several meetings with a gentleman named Gary Wilmore. Gary and I have done a lot of joint work together over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Gary was actually the state inspector for the state of Rhode Island and installed the Block Island structure, the, the five structures at Block Island in 2015 and 16. And we just sat down talking one day and we said, you know, oil and gas is, is really kind of a, a fading trend, if you will. And Gary says, you know what we ought to do is we ought to start a company between, I, I'm, I'm a bit younger than he is, Gary's 68, I'm 54. He says, you got a lot of, a lot of spunk left in you. You know, what would you think if we started a company that did primarily wind? And I, I was familiar with his, his previous, offshore wind um, installation experience. I said, let's do it, Gary. I didn't even have to think about it. I looked at my wife. It was actually Memorial Weekend. Gary had a barbecue at his house. I looked at my wife, she winked, and I said, Gary, let's do it. And it really, it just didn't take any thought process because it is the future. There are somewhere between six and 15,000 structures that will be installed off the Atlantic seaboard in the next 10 years. And when I started in the Gulf of Mexico, there were approximately 7,000 structures. So in 50 years, we put in 7,000 structures. When you say structures, you talk about the wind turbines? That's correct. That's correct. There are, I want to say, 11 to 14 various fields under consideration. And the 2018 Department of Energy report, which is the newest one I've been able to find for business development purposes states that there are 6,000 sanctioned structures that will go in. You know, there's 80 in this field, there's 140 in this field, 150 in that field. You know, you've got your various operators, your horsesteads, your vineyards, avengrids, each one of them has contracts with each state to produce X number of megawatts or gigawatts of electrical power. So off of each coastline, there are, you know, corresponding numbers of, you know, 800 megawatts, I think it is off New York. Although I may have my numbers crossed, but, uh, you know, they range anywhere from a couple hundred megawatt off of uh, Rhode Island to, I want to say 1300 off of Massachusetts. Each one of those, each one of those individual facilities, um, produces about 10 and a half megawatts of power with what's currently available. GE did just come out with a larger one that produces 13 and a half, but there, um, there's some time prior to delivery. So most of the ones that are planned now are about 10 and a half megawatt generators for the individual structures. And then the fields, you know, there's 80 to 100, 150 of them, depending on which field it is. Who's the um, who's the customer when it comes to wind, or I guess who who's the operator when it, you know the wind? You know who's who's in charge there? You know when it comes to the oil and gas, you know you mentioned the you know the Exxon's and the BPs and up in Alaska, what is there Shell and BP up there or no Exxon and BP? Exxon, yeah, 
yeah, Exxon BP Shell on the on the North Slope. Yeah, you know what I mean. But in wind energy, are is it these global oil and gas companies, or is it you know wind to companies? Some extent, to some extent, yes. Shell okay. and BP are very active in the renewables. Now, when you say renewable, are you talking wind? Primarily wind, yes. Okay, yeah. Although there's other stuff, you know, there's solar, there's wave power, there's there's all this stuff under consideration. Oh, nuclear. Uh, nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, Shell and BP are very active in the U.S. East Coast wind market. But what's interesting is there's only one U.S. company involved in the Atlantic offshore wind industry, that being Dominion Energy. They're based out of New Orleans. Sure. And, and that, that's really the only one that you've seen, huh? It is. Now, there are a lot of operators out of Norway, Holland, the UK. You've got Orsted, which is a Dutch company. You have uh, Equinor, which is a Norwegian company, formerly Stout Oil. Boy, this is interesting. You have, um, gosh, there's EDF out of Spain. Of course, Shell is Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, they're they're out of Holland, and then you've got um, gosh, there's a bunch more. You've got Avangrid, which is a partnership, and I can never keep these straight. The partnership ones, I, you know, um, these companies you mentioned, you know, Statoil is the one that jumped out to me, and you know, they they do a lot in drilling, you know, in, in oil. I think they do. Um, Absolutely. So uh, these huge, huge, huge global players. Right, right. So those other companies you named um, are they also in the oil and gas markets? These European companies you named. Um, the only one that I know for certain is is BP Shell and uh, Stout Oil slash Equinor. Yeah. Which I I don't know why they changed their name. I think it had to do with their play in, in renewables. And, oh, and I, it, it flat out had to do with the word oil in there. Absolutely it did. Totally. That's right. the same reason why BP, BP went to went from British Petroleum to BP so that people can think beyond petroleum is, you know, the new acronym and whatever the heck is. But no, I just wanted to make sure because I Stat Oil was the only one that jumped out as kind of a hybrid oil and gas slash wind energy. So the rest are basically wind energy companies that are coming in and building uh, offshore. Are these off? These are offshore. You're talking about, right? That's correct. And I mean, right now there are five producing windmills off of the U.S. coast. And those are on Rhode Island, Rhode Island, off of Block Island. Now there are some exploratory ones. I think there's some off of Virginia. There's some floaters off of the California coast, but those are used primarily for research and development for what the what the true wind potential is. We don't. The very first utility grade installation will be Vineyard, which is off of Martha's Vineyard. And they have five blocks. Each one of those is going to have you know eighty to one hundred and fifty individual windmills. All right, you're gonna you're gonna probably get upset, but what, what's vineyard? Is that is that a geographical colloquial term? Is that a name of a project? Is that a name of an energy company? What's vineyard? No, so vineyard is another operator. 
And they will actually be the first ones to install a utility-grade facility offshore on the U.S. coast. Okay, so they're a U.S. company. No, they're actually a partnership between two companies, and I don't remember which two off the top of my head. Okay. My apologies. No, that's okay. That's okay. It's pop quiz, so it's okay. Um, they're okay, but they're, they're, they're not U.S. companies, though? They have a, a U.S. subsidiary okay. on, of, uh, okay. on of here, but but they are owned by some of the others that I mentioned, Orsted, Equinor. Sure. Um, I don't remember which two exactly. Okay. No, I'm just curious if it's you know. If, if the second we get off this call, I will look it up, and and I won't, I won't, you won't catch me tongue tied again on that one. No, that's okay. Because no, I, I'm just. For, I'll tell you where my mind is, and I, you know, I don't want to editorialize, and I don't want to get upset, or I don't want to, you know, cause any issues or anything like that. But it just seems like you know, over the last few years, there's been a lot of dollars and a lot of uh, energy directional to go towards, you know, the wind and, and et cetera. And then so hearing that, you know, all these companies are foreign companies and yet our government sending people to go there and it just, it's different. It almost seems like uh, Europe got a real big head start. They <laughs> did for 20 years, by 20 years. You know, they've been putting these things up in, in uh, off of, uh, the United Kingdom, all the way around Ireland. There's, there's. I mean, they've they've been doing this for 20 years, and there's been discussion about this in the United States since the mid 90s. But the problem we've had is really the way the country is set up. We have um, the states control a certain portion of the waters off of their coast. You have the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, and BSEE, which are federal institutions, control all of the international waters, if you will. They're also tasked with, you know, so the, the whole permitting process with having all of these competing interests has really slowed down the United States entry into the offshore wind industry. Is there... Is there any discussion about just doing a, you know, maritime law? I mean, they do it with banking. Why, why, why can't they do it with energy like that? Well, because the states own the waters for three miles out. And okay. So it's three miles. Okay. okay. Louisiana's 12, and that goes back to whoever planted a flag in the ground was from a country that had a 12-mile limit. I want to say France actually originally got uh, the Louisiana coast. So the Louisiana coast is a 12-mile limit. It's very, very difficult to understand. I'm curious what happened to France, because they were part of the Alamo, too, but they don't seem to have anything left in Texas. There's a little bit left in Louisiana, but (laughs) just anyway. um, What's with the food? I, I know that's about it, you know, just kind of their their you know the the, the Creole slash uh, benets and everything. They they left a little bit of a French twist behind, but outside of that, <laughs> certainly not much else. Right. right. Um, there's a there's a heavy French Cajun culture, if you will, but it's almost more uh, French Canadian than it is France France because well, most of the settlers came from uh, from Canada. 
I was going to say, you know, uh, up in our neck of the woods, you know, Montreal, which is a little bit far away, but Canada, the, the language stuck around, <laughs> you know, just a little bit more than the food. Uh, so, okay, this is really, this is really interesting to me. So what you basically uh, transitioned because of the, you know, just the, the different workflow and the contracts and, and, and just basically the way the market shook out, huh? I mean, am I hearing that yeah, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, it was real obvious that the amount of money and the amount of daily utilization days on a offshore vessel each year were diminishing. And on the East Coast, they're appreciating. It's, you know, that, that industry's in its infancy. So we provide two different services, if you will. We, as a result of Gary's prior involvement in Block Island and the requisite use of the union labor, and there's, an all, there's also all kinds of local content criteria. It's almost like working in a foreign country in that regard. You know, when we go to Nigeria, we got to have 40 or 50% local labor, sometimes more than 50%. Guyana's the same way. Everywhere in the world I've ever worked except for the U.S., now, when you work in New York, for instance, you've got to have a certain percentage of local content. Those people have to be union labor. So the first big milestone that we overcame with entry into the offshore wind market was the issuance of the one and only blanket union collective bargaining agreement that has been issued to date with all of the applicable labor unions. There's actually seven of them. Two of them are in process, but we have a, a five-party collective bargaining agreement that encompasses the carpenters union, which is also the, the, the pile drivers, the dock builders, and the commercial divers. We've got the commercial engineers, the laborers union, uh, international brotherhood of electrical workers, and the brotherhood of engineers, or it might not be brotherhood. It's the, the the engineers union, if you will. So that was our first step. Since then, the seafarers union has come to us because we provide vessels. We have a fleet of 47 vessels that we offer to the offshore wind industry. Um, we, we also provide a lot of ancillary support, the commercial diving, uh, subsea robotics, um, all the sensors, the all kinds of tools for underwater and the big construction vessels. So one of the things that has been a real key issue with the actual installation and construction beyond the labor is you have to use what are called Jones Act compliant vessels. And the Jones Act, which was enacted in 1920, is basically been around the, the philosophy's been around since the Phoenician times, and what it does is it protects your domestic marine industry, shipbuilding, coastal trading, the coastwise trade aspect of moving products or people from one domestic port to another. That actually applies to the offshore wind industry. So you have to have a boat that was one built in the United States. Two is owned and operated by a U.S. company, and three is staffed by U.S. personnel to work in the offshore wind industry by law. 
That doesn't mean they won't issue waivers. Because as you mentioned previously, the Europeans are 20 years ahead of us. They've got a lot more of these vessels. Dimedian Energy is building one. Uh, Weeks Marine is building one. And then we also have a third that is kind of quasi-Jones Act compliant. And what I mean by that is it's owned and operated or will be owned and operated. We're in the, we're in the process of an acquisition on the boat. It's a 2014-built 460-foot vessel with bumps for 399 people. And it has a thousand ton Derrick crane on the back deck. We can never be fully Jones Act because it was actually built in the Marco Polo shipyard in Baton. But we can operate within the Jones Act because we're not going to transport anyone or any cargo from one U.S. port to another. All of that will be brought out by barges, tugboats, uh, supply boats, crew boats, helicopters. And then we will strictly work in the field doing the installation. You mentioned the labor, kind of the one-stop shop, if you will. I kind of joked one article I did the first year in the Bakken that uh, in North Dakota, you know, if you're a plumber, a pipe fitter, an electrician, you got to be certified by the, by the state. So these people were called, I called them... Uh, uh, deities and demigods of the oil patch because boy these people were so sought after and I there was a company out of Fargo they had to stop sending people to the west because it was an electric company electrician the guy would go to dinner at night and he'd get hired by somebody out at dinner for double his salary and the kicker is that the electrician, the, the energy or the electric company back in Fargo had to hire the guy back because there was such a shortage of these people. <laughs> so um, that's interesting about what, what you guys have been able to put together. So um, basically what you're saying is that as companies are starting to realize that the transition is, is, is happening, um, for people to find work that you guys are putting together this kind of system that's going to be able to make it a little bit more user-friendly for people to get work? Does that make sense as far as uh, disseminating jobs and et cetera? It is. Between the, the five unions that we have under our umbrella currently, and I'm not saying that there won't be another contract like ours issued, it just it took four years for this one yeah. to to transpire to get all of the unions in agreement with a contract that Gary would actually execute. Um, it's to get all of these people on the same page is very difficult. Now, is just is this just for New York, or is there other states too? Like I don't know. Does Ro- no? No, it, it includes all of the Eastern Seaboard. Okay, and that's why it was so difficult and why it took four years. To to, imp- to 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 get this contract done is because each state has their own criteria also. So if you're working in New York, you have to pay a welder, for instance, or an electrician, one rate. If you go to New Jersey, that rate changes. So every time you change, you go across the state line, you're actually running into all kinds of paperwork nightmares to, to try to figure out, okay, so this guy worked from midnight to six o'clock in the morning in New York waters. We, uh, we crossed over into New Jersey while we were installing this cable at six in the morning and he worked until noon. 
you know, that kind of thing. And it, when you when you multiply that by maybe 300 people working on the back deck of a vessel, you know, it becomes a, a fairly onerous project just to track the paperwork to pay these people properly because all every state has got a different um, rate for these people, if you will. They make a different amount of money if they're in New York versus New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Virginia, whatever. Yeah, I can imagine just between the certifications and the fees and the different paperwork, that could take all kinds of time and then throw COVID in there. Boy, that's... Oh, yeah, COVID has become a... You know, I mean, you've got the... We haven't seen a lot of COVID criteria yet on in the offshore wind. It's, it'll happen. It's inevitable. No, I was Maybe just not, talking about from from the uh, bureaucrats blaming, you know, everything on COVID for not getting things done in a timely manner. That's all. That's all I'm oh, talking yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, but, but that transposes into, you know, like when we work internationally and, and even to some extent last year, we were having to quarantine these people for seven days in a hotel by themselves prior to being able to go on a job. Um, then they had to quarantine for seven days before they could go home. And if they demonstrated any symptoms, you know, it's, it's, it's become a very, very difficult issue to deal with and a, a costly one because we have to charge for those people. I mean, they expect to get paid if they're not at home and rightfully so. So we have to pass that cost on to our client and they don't want to really eat at all. So you've got to negotiate with them individually on a case by case basis. You know, Hey, I'll take half of it. You take half of it kind of thing. This may be over your head, and I apologize, but just because of the complexity of international waters and state waters and international companies and local companies and state unions and I don't know if, you know, the old traditional movies are correct with unions or not, but you got some other entities that are in the shadow behind the scenes maybe too, so I don't know, but... When it comes to <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, there's an awful lot of politicking goes on behind the scenes. So okay, exactly. But 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 at the end of the day, what brings everybody together together is uh, who's getting paid. So how, are, are you guys using you know digital dollars? Is the import export bank involved? Does it funnel through the government and they pay you through subsidies? How, how's everybody getting paid on this? I can answer part of that. Okay. Some of it, some of it is well beyond my, my, my area of knowledge. No, that's okay, because it's a very complicated question. I, I don't think people realize how complicated it is. So the state of New York, and I'll just use that as one instance, is because I just read the contract here within the last a matter of a few days because we got a tender in. So unlike a traditional oil and gas tender, most of these people send out their contract with the state of New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, or whatever, when they send out a contract or a contract tender request, and you're expected to be in full compliance. So what happens is the state of New York contracts with an Orsted, a Dominion, a Vineyard, and they are, uh, uh, the Orsteds, the Vineyards, whatever, are expected to provide a kilowatt hour of electricity for a given price for a given period of time. So they're they're under long-term contract for the production of power for like a state utility commission. 
So on the, on the inverse side of that, you have all of these federal tax subsidies that are being paid. And, and it's actually impacted the installation schedules substantially. You have companies, I'll use Atlantic Shores, which is one of the developments off of Massachusetts, northern Massachusetts, as an example. That company is not going to start their actual installation and construction until they receive all of their appropriate documentation on their federal tax subsidies. So instead of them starting construction this year, that particular project will actually be pushed back till next year. So, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of moving pieces. You know, you've got your state utility commission contracting with the developer, the Orsted, the Vineyard, the Atlantic Shores, to produce the energy, then you've got the federal government is paying subsidies, and then you've got all of these other things moving at the state and at the federal level as far as the permitting and the, you know, it's, it's very, very complex. And that's one of the reasons why instead of having wind energy off of our coast 20 years ago, it's taken until 2021 or 2015 before the first offshore installations were done and 2021 to 23 before we have an actual functioning utility grade um, offshore wind component that, that's utility grade that can actually, you know, support an, a state grid. So you're, you're doing 20% oil and gas work, but it's primarily decommissioning offshore wells. Is that correct? Or pipelines. Or, pi- or pipelines. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of times now they're actually required to remove the pipelines. Okay, okay. And um, and you said about 80%. And this is the last couple of years that this shift has happened? Where after how many years were you in oil and gas? 29? Yeah, yeah, 30 is just right around the corner. So third, after 30 years of oil and gas, I mean, was this was this shift from, you know, 100% of oil and gas to 80-20? Was that within a two-year span? There was actually a decline that started post Deepwater Horizon, the Mocondo incident from BP. Um, things got a lot more difficult. They, they became a lot more onerous, and the regulatory bodies started looking a lot harder prior to the issuance of permits. And then we had the downturn of the industry that started in 2012, and to some extent is still ongoing. So it's, it's since 2012, we've seen the industry just continually diminish. It's funny you called 2012 the downturn. That's when it hit $100 oil. <laughs> yeah, but that was the peak. From there, it went downhill. No, I know. I've just never heard of it referred to that because I've always, you know, 2015 is what they call the downturn. And, um, you know, right around that time, end of 14 and into 16. But I, I remember... Oh, I did an article for one of the publications. I can't remember if it was the Bismarck Tribune or the Dickinson Press, maybe both. But I went to a conference, and this was in 2013, at the end of 2013, and the article was about how, well, the CEOs are done coming to the Bakken. Yeah, it's like a rare albino elk sighting now because, you know, it was over. You know, right. for a variety of reasons, the, the $100 oil was done. But the Bakken's a little bit different because um, for there, 
you know, they, they need to prove that the oil's there. They, they already knew it was there because of the science, but they needed that $100 oil to go drill a quick cap, you know, well and cap it and, and, and prove it. And then they got 20, 25 years to drill. So now it's just a commodities price game for, for out right. there. Uh, you know, when they, when they drill the exploratory wells, they're looking for proven reserves, right? Yeah, and, and because, you know, the, the, the library they have in the Bach, in the Laird Library, and every oil company's had to do a core sample since the 50s, um, you know, th- that sort of shared knowledge just allowed all these companies to know what was down there, but you still had to prove it. Yeah, you still had to physically prove it. Um, right. And, and, you know, when it hit $100 oil, they were able to do that, you know, out in, you know, Fortuna areas where you got to get to the, you know, $90 range. I think it's Fortuna. Uh, I apologize for for not knowing my micro specifics of the dollar ranges out there in the Bakken at this point, because this is a pop quiz for me here, too. So, hey, look at that. We both have pop quiz fails today. So that's OK. Um, well, I was more curious about just how your transition went from the oil and gas to wind. It doesn't sound like it was political. It was more marketplace, and the marketplace was kind of driven by by regulations and subsidies. It really it, it has been. And, yeah. you know, the, the behind-the-scenes planning and permitting and stuff, is now just coming to a head. They've been working on this since the 90s, trying to figure out how do we put offshore wind off of the United States coast? You know, um, they got real serious about it in about 2005 and started doing some some planning and stuff. And I mean, that was long before I ever considered it as a business opportunity. I was still working for other people at the time. And... Um, as Gary and I worked on various projects in 2017, 18, 19, we talked a little bit about it. It just became more apparent the more homework that I did on it, that this is truly the future of energy. And if you look at some of the books that were written by Michael Economides, who was a, a uh, uh, University of Houston um, what was he? He's a, he was an economist. He passed away on an airplane coming out of Javier or a Bush Airport in Houston, flying to DC in 2013. But he wrote some extremely good books about the global expansion of energy consumption and how much more we're going to need every year as as some of these third world countries get into having electricity and running water and flush toilets and microwaves and motorcycles versus pedal bicycles. You know, there's a lot of parts of the world. We, we, Americans are spoiled at the end of the day, right? We, we've got things that they don't have in other parts of the world. But as these other parts of the world start to experience what it's like to have a toaster, what it's like to have not cook your dinner like they do in, in, uh, in Haiti on charcoal, um, they get greedy for more. It's just human nature. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. I didn't have to go buy charcoal today to cook dinner. You know, I've got, I've got gas, I've got electricity and I want more of it. You know, I want lights on instead of having to to go to bed when it gets dark. And there's a lot of third world countries that just don't have that. And, And as they get just a little taste of it, 
they want more. And Michael was just a phenomenal, um, a lot of his books were just phenomenal. His talks were even better. How he delved into that and, and how the exponential growth of the energy industry is going to outpace even what oil and gas is available, how much oil and gas is available to produce this energy. He predicted this way back in, you know, 09, 010. I, I, I listened to several of his talks and it really started making sense in 17, 18, talking with Gary about the Block Island project. As, as I learned more about offshore wind, it just became the no brainer. It, it, it was, to me, it was just, a, you know, this is the next big thing. I remember when I saw the Super Bowl ad for, I want to say it was Exxon. I believe it was Exxon that was doing, so. doing the plankton, like biofuel. Right. Yeah, and when I saw, I think that was like 10 years ago now that I'm thinking about it. When, when I saw that, that's when I, I knew that oil and gas companies were going to be forced to just be an energy company. It was no longer, you, you, you could no longer be sustainable just doing oil and gas. It, they, they were going to force you to just either do all the above, because that was the term back then, all the above. Right. Uh, and um, now, now I, I think that term's kind of passe. Um, there's some other terms they're using, and I forget the one that... Uh, Oh, when the the energy secretary, who's the new energy secretary? Um, Grisholm, is that her name? Yeah, yeah. When she did that, so. when she did that interview with the Washington Post, and they put the transcript up, and and she just flat out said, "Hey, get on board or go away." And all of a sudden, you know, the API came out shortly after and said, "Let's start having a public discussion about the uh, climate tax and climate pricing and." Yeah, all the signs are there, you know, all the signs are, are, are there, you know, and it's, it's you know, I, I call this year the year that's going to be defined by defection, and, and the marketplace was part of the, part of it, and what you're telling me is exactly what I thought, which is the very sterile reality of just the way the manipulation of a marketplace can happen and and manipulation is not meant to be a negative word just an actual just the way that it's being controlled now the other side of it of the defined by defection and it doesn't sound like this is you but maybe i don't know um is the kind of the the um you know big oil is the new big tobacco if you will kind of the modern day leper and you know it's 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 okay to socially shame oil and gas now this you know on, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's part of it too. You know when people are are getting shamed at parties and they're not making the six figures anymore. And John Kerry saying you know go 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 build solar panels and that kind of stuff. I mean that's that's tough to stay loyal to an industry. So. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you're following me at all, but I am. And and you know, my real, I knew I was doing the right thing. My my kids. I have a daughter that turned eighteen last week, and she'll be going to college next year. She's got a free ride um, locally, and um, when she started taking an interest in the renewable energy business. She's got a little bit of a 
I'm not going to say leftist, but maybe a little bit of a liberal, a little bit left of center liberal outlook on things. And when she started looking at the things that we were doing and applauding it, there was no question in my mind that this was truly the future. And I mean, all the signs were there, but the social acceptance of it, it really came from my kids. Let me ask you a question. Um, sure. Well, because you've got, you know, 29 years in the industry, you got to have some respect for the industry, I would imagine. A tremendous amount. Yeah. I, I've, I've done very well. It's, it's been better to me than farming in the north part of the, of the, the country could have ever been to me. And, you know, you're, you're doing 80% wind, basically, um, 20% oil and gas, and a lot of that was directed by the marketplace in the last couple of years. But you're also not blind to, you know, the, the, the trends that are out there and et cetera. <clears throat> how, can, how can the industry, and this is, by the way, no right or wrong answer to this because the industry has spent billions of dollars in the last 10 years, and we've gone from plastic bags and, and plastic straws, whether we should ban them or is paper or plastic better to the freaking president is issuing a war on oil and gas. So, I mean, things are not going the direction that the money was spent for public relations in the industry, right? So how, how can we convince or connect and engage with people like your daughter, and I'm not saying your daughter has a dis- disdain or a despise against oil and gas, but so much of the you know wind turbines and so much of the solar panels and so much of what we do on a daily basis is is fossil fuel related and petroleum. I mean, a lot of the wind turbine is made out of petroleum, and Teslas are too. How do we absolutely, get- absolutely the, the the copper and the transmission yeah. cables? What what is that mined with? Totally. It's, it's mined with diesel-operated Caterpillar equipment, right? So h- how do we connect and get them to understand that, you know, we, we need a, you know, we are energy united front, a, more of a kumbaya than a, you know, it's all the, only this kind or only that kind and, and that sort of thing, you know, is, I don't even know the answer, but is there a way to connect with these kids anymore or is just, just the horse too far out of the barn at this point? You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But what I, tr- I personally believe, if you look at the United States, you know, we're the the administration in Washington has got this big push for renewables, and that's great because oil and gas can't pr- produce all of the energy that's going to be needed in ten years, twenty years, thirty years, right? But on the inverse side of that coin. Does it really do the globe any good for us to quit trying to use hydrocarbons when you have places like China that are going to install 5,000 new coal-fired electrical plants in the next 10 years? You know, what's the... To me, it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is that is that where we're going to go? Is are we going to wage war on China because they are using coal to stay warm? I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I know it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, there's, there's an awful lot of politicking behind that, right? Well, it's a ridiculous question, but I mean, if they're forcing a country, you know, that they can only use their toaster on Tuesday because it's bad for the environment and climate change, and 
in other countries just firing up coal plants. I mean, pretty soon somebody's going to say, well, I want to use my toaster three times a week now. Right. <laughs> and by the way, that's exactly. America is the one that can only use the toaster a few times a week. Well, I'm just curious about the climate czar and the climate envoy and what direction they're going, you know? You know, I don't think personally that we have the influences in other parts of the world so we can truly make a difference when you have every country acting as its own sovereign, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I don't like the idea of one global government, I think that's what it would take to well, truly that's, make a difference. Uh, that's the, um, that's been the conspiracy theory. And ever since, you know, earth day first came around and, you know, right. as that eventually, you know, the United Nations is going to take over the military and force everybody through the act of, well, back then, I think it was global warming is what it started as. Something yeah. Like yeah, but because the environment is the one thing that we all share. You know, we all share that because and it's very easy to connect with the environment. I mean, you walk sure. outside and you can connect and you got great memories. And, you know, even from the. You know, I, I grew up Catholic, and I was an altar boy, a Sunday school teacher. I went to Catholic school, and so I was spoon. Our kids are in Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so so, so you know me, I was spoon fed fear and guilt my whole life, right? Just kidding. Right. <laughs> That's my Catholic joke. And um, but when, when I look at you know just even original sin from the whole, you know we we've destroyed the planet, so we got to feel guilty about it. Just this whole movement, it's it's all there. Uh, it's it's interesting, you know. I mean. Right. People can call it a conspiracy or they can call it real or they can call it just, you know, evolution. But it's just it's there. <laughs> I mean, right. it's it ha- it's happening. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's 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 on in color every day at six. Well, like I said, in the last 10 years, when you take a look at when I grew up and you when when you got into the industries in the 90s. Right. That's when I was yep. graduating high school. The only thing oil and gas ever came up with was the Exxon Valdez oil spill and gas prices. And that's it. Never any problems. And then in the 2000s, you started with plastic bags because of the litter. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic bags. And the same thing with the straws. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic straws. But either well, way, the fact that they don't that they don't degrade. Well, yeah, like, but yeah, you but, know, it's that paper sack. Totally, but then they found out paper was was worse than plastic because of the logging and the amount of diesel it takes right. and blah 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 right. and and but either way, and you know, in the in the '90s or I'm sorry, in the 2000s, it was basically that. Well, then in the last 10 years, we've gone from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to AOC to the Green New Deal to where. Like I said, Biden is issuing executive orders. That's amazing. In 20 years of just of gas prices was the only issue to now there's this. I'm just I'm blown away by such a thing. So. And, and, you know, when I had to pay for heating oil in Minnesota as a young adult and gasoline and oil and oil changes and tires and all this other stuff that comes from hydrocarbons. It used to trouble me, and and you you might find this hilarious, but when my parents complain about that, they still live in Roseau. My dad retired from Marvin's. He worked at Marvin's and Blair's most of his adult life. 
I tell them, hey, ain't it great? Gas is four bucks a gallon. We're making money again. You know, and I'm dead serious, and they're dead serious. You know, we're on we're our thought processes are on, on two different sides of the coin. Right. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're trying to live on a on a fixed income in retirement, and I'm just trying to feed my family and keep them in Catholic school long enough to get them into college. You know. Right. And, you know, natural gas. That's interesting, too, because, you know, uh, up up in your parents' part of the world, I imagine XL Energy is who they have. Um, they have an independent uh, cooperative. Oh, sure. Uh, the, OK. No, yeah, I, actually. I, I had one for a while, too, when I was rural outside of Fargo-Moorhead. Um, we were as a Halstead cooperative. So the but um at any rate, there was, you know, all those tax credits and the government basically forced everybody in one step or another to uh, do a gas furnace up here. And, Absolutely. And so it's funny, you know, when, when gas prices go from, you know, a buck to two bucks to all of a sudden eight bucks, holy smoke, somebody on a fixed income, that's tough. Right. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Of course, the oil and gas companies are like, finally, some money we're making to natural gas after losing our tail for 10 years. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, and, and, you know, it takes an Exxon or a Chevron, a Shell, somebody like that. It takes them at least $60, $65 a barrel to actually break even between the time you figure the exploration and the, the building of the production infrastructure and, and everything that goes with that. And, you know, when we were in the, what, 2005, 2000, right up until the, the the BP spill, we were actually, they were making money. We were making money. It wasn't perfect. But if you take a smaller company that buys these divestitures, when, when Shell and Chevron gets done with, with these properties, when they start to become what they call a marginal property, they can make money, you know, somebody like maybe a Walter Oil and Gas or or somebody like that. They can make money at substantially less, maybe forty or fifty dollars a barrel. And it, and it's it's really interesting from my perspective to look at that. You know, a smaller company, they got a smaller overhead, they've got less personnel, they've got less money tied up in exploration. They take these divestiture packages from the BPs and the shells of the world. And they do a little work over on the well and spend a couple million dollars. And all of a sudden, this thing's producing real well again. And But it, it's always been interesting to me where the oil had to be at for each of these companies to actually be, be profitable. Yeah. Hmm. And and that is, I imagine, changed in the last couple of years, too, with new changed dramatically. New regulations they, they the, and everything, yeah. Well, and they beat the contractors up. Last year, several of them, Marine Energy being one of them, came back to the contractors because most of them ended up in bankruptcy Yeah, with COVID. And um, they were asking their contractors to take a 20 to 30% cut, and there was no money to cut because they were already operating at rock bottom. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about the operators asking their supply chain and then turn around and file bankruptcy or get sold out or get bought out and then they you know grandfather in those new cut contracts and all these other things and so it's it's been tough over there for the past couple of years for a lot of a lot of the supply chain been very tough very tough oh it has been absolutely yeah so okay um kind of looking at the time you're wrapping up you know, make sure you give your company a plug again, but just kind of, you know, most of our audience is oil and gas. So, you know, what what message, you know, you want people to 
walk away from and, and, and how can people utilize your business? Well, we, Blue Boat Subsea, one of the companies that, that, that I have ownership in is a primarily a renewables energy service provider. Um, we provide both vessels for the offshore construction, maintenance, and operation of offshore wind turbine facilities. But we do about 20% of our business in the global oil and gas segment also. Um, we're here. We're, we're always available. Most people in various parts of the world I know myself or my business partner, Gary Wilmore. And, um, you know, we have in the last year really embraced the renewables because we see it as the future. I, with what I know of the overall energy sector, the use of oil and gas is, um, been on an increase ever since we first drilled our first oil well and uh, offshore in South Louisiana, South Louisiana swamps in the early 1900s. You know, as, as everybody that uses oil and gas continually uses more oil and gas. And at some point, there's just not enough of it. So that's one of the reasons that we embrace the renewable. We, we see the global exponential growth of consumption not being able to be satisfied by just oil and gas. And that's why we embraced the renewables and the, the offshore wind as we have. It's, um, to us, it's helping to supply a, a large part of the future energy segment and the, the consumption of the United States, especially in the larger metropolitan areas that don't have oil wells in their backyard. The only thing that is available are wind turbines or, or other forms of renewable energy yet to be developed. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. Music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Jason Space. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomenon. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without, without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. 
So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. Well, that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky, and we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can speak for my 20 companies. They take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions because you you ask important questions that, that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer representing proudly the state of North Dakota in the United States Senate. Talking to Jason Spies, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> the Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk about Women's History Month. Every March since 1987, Congress and U.S. presidents have designated this month as Women's History Month. This year, the Crude Life celebrates and honors their accomplishments and vital contributions in history with interviews and stories that center around women's experiences in industry. These women are not only modern-day leaders, but they are truly historic as well. Up next, Lauren Guerra with the Austin, Montana Project and also past president of the Women's Energy Network out of South Texas. Um, I do all of the digital content for the San Antonio Pipeline or anything that you see coming um, from the website or email is um, designed by me. I also do a lot of um, help on the design side and helping them to um, create graphics and promotional items. And then also just involved in all of the events because I really have a very big passion for networking and meeting new people. It goes along really well with my career as well, but just in general, I'm a very outgoing, um, friendly person and I love making new friends. So I really enjoy that about SAPA. SAPA is the San Antonio Pipeliners Association. Um, their purpose is to provide an opportunity for networking within the energy industry. Um, they have members that span um, multiple segments within the midstream sector and really, really great people. They have um, an, a monthly luncheon and also some larger fundraising events like um, the annual midstream classic golf tournament and they have the clay shoot um, and a saltwater um, fishing tournament. So they do multiple events to raise money for their 501c3 um, arm, which is the Midstream America Scholarship Fund. Um, so in addition to the networking opportunities, you can also utilize your opportunities to network as well and as um, help students in the STEM areas. So I really love the, the goal of this organization. It goes right along with what I enjoy doing. And they're a really, really great group of people. To listen to the full-length interview with Lauren Gira with the Austin, Montana Project and past president of the Women's Energy Network of South Texas, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. Please join us all month long as we celebrate Women's History Month here at The Crude Life. From the staff here at The Crude Life Week in Review, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. 
The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. The music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life with host Jason Spies. So there's still people without power as of this morning. You know, right now, I think there's very limited driving out there in West Texas. They're generating about 5% of the power today uh, in, in Texas. Sensitive microphone because I just poured a glass of water because we don't have running water here yet. I mean, this, is, this has been uh, a very trying week for a lot of people across the state of Texas. Uh, there are, and, and let me just say this, I, you, I'm sorry that so many Texans were let down by their grid. On the phone talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipe and pipelines in Texas and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities uh, lines in Texas. So we have a lot of, and gathering lines are in that 470,000 miles as well. So we have a lot of pipe in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a six. It it is a very challenging day in Texas right now. Uh, The grid operator is projecting that nearly three million homes in Texas uh, are without power today. uh, And and there's- It's our snowing here in Lubbock again. I mean, I don't, I thought it was supposed to be sunny today. So I'm from Odessa, and that's a big part of my district, but I also represent, uh, in addition to Hector County, uh, three other counties in the Permian Basin. So Andrews County, Hector County, Ward County, and Winkler County, but uh, all, all in West Texas, all in the middle of the oil patch. You know, when they close the roads down, we can't transport that, that those, uh, those materials. And so we can't get the product to uh, where it needs to go to get refined so that we can either one, heat our homes, or two, uh, have fuel for our vehicles. Um, with pipelines, that doesn't really come into effect. You know, once the pipelines are laid, not much can stop that that crude oil or uh, natural gas from getting from point A to point B. They are so far behind the curve on getting the storage, the battery storage, uh, in place to be, even be able to handle a, 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 you know, the most minute degree of storage for a case like what happened in Texas. And now, you know, there's gonna be a spotlight on that. And just an incredible impact. We saw nearly 30 gigawatts uh, come offline yesterday. Half the gigawatts went without water since Saturday. On Friday, the Railroad Commission uh, took quick action. I know you recently had Chairman Craddock on. We'll have water for until 5 p.m. and then we'll be off again for the night. On Friday, I sent a letter asking the Public Utilities Commission of Texas to rescind its order authorizing uh, these uh, generator, these generators or these providers to increase the rates. You know, I don't know that's true, but I don't think I'd want to be in a hospital in Dallas, Texas on a 
on life support and know that wind energy is going to be my source of keeping that machine running, right? JP Warren reporting from uh, Houston, Texas at 9, 12 a.m. Uh, I don't even know what day it is right now. I think it's Wednesday. Uh, we ran out of water yesterday. Well, I've had maybe three hours of sleep in three days.